Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Ether 12 through 15. This is the conclusion of the record of Ether. And in this text, we're going to see the disintegration of the Jaredites. But before we get there in the 15th chapter, Moroni is going to do the opposite. So instead of disintegration, we're going to talk about building up. We're going to talk about faith and Jesus. And there's a really cool invitation at the end of this 12th chapter, Bryce. So when you teach this, what are some things that you talk about when you approach Ether 12? Anytime Ether 12 is in your block, you get to talk about faith. And I love Moroni's definition here. He, he gives us several definitions of faith, starting in verse 4. If you believe, whoso believeth in God might with assurity hope for a better world, which hope cometh of faith. Then in verse 6 he says, I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Now, I love those. I love Alma 29. You know, this, it's this idea of not disputing because you don't see. Years ago, I came across a definition of faith from C.S. Lewis that really helped me put my hands around it. I wanted to just say, give me a definition of faith that gives me, that allows me to just see it, walk away from this discussion and know exactly what it means to have faith. Because we talk about not seeing and believing and those types of things. But years ago, I found this definition from C.S. Lewis, and my life has never been the same. Now, I'm not trying to say that C.S. Lewis necessarily has the definition, but he worded it in such a way that really gives me perspective. So let me share it with you. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, book three, I used to assume that if the human mind once accept the thing as true, it will automatically go in regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. For example, Now, C.S. Lewis lived back in the 1960s, 50s, 40s. He died the same day JFK was shot. So put this back in the 60s. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on that table and clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke, and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that has taken away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imaginations and my emotions, and I would add, fears. The battle is between faith and reason on one side, and emotion and imagination, and again, I would add fear on the other. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it. 
I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few days. There will come a moment when there is bad news, or he is in trouble, or he's living among a lot of people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his beliefs. Or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman, or he wants to tell a lie, or he feels very pleased with himself, or he sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair, some moment in which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I am not talking about moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I am talking about moments where a mere mood rises up. And again, I come back to the word fear. That's me, Bryce. We're talking about moments where fear rises up. Now, this is C.S. Lewis's sentence that just helped me put my fingers around faith. He said, now faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your fears. Now, to me, that is exactly what Moroni is trying to say here. You can lose a blessing in the darkness when you let go and give in to fear. Now, to just kind of see some scriptural evidence of what C.S. Lewis is talking about, Oliver Cowdery was given an opportunity to translate the plates, and he didn't. And the Lord says, you feared. Peter jumps out of a boat, fully confident in the Savior's invitation. He knew that the Savior was inviting him to walk on the water, but then the storm hit, and he feared. And in the fear, he lost the blessing. And Jesus grabs him and pulls him up and rebukes him for what? For his fear. He rebukes him. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Why were you afraid? And to me, that's kind of the essence of faith, is we know what we've been promised. We know the truth. We know what God has promised. But then comes the moment of darkness and doubt. And if you fear in that moment, if you let into your fears, you will, like Peter on that water, sink and fall into the storm. And you can lose a blessing in that fear. So if you go back to Ether chapter 12, notice what he says faith is. He calls faith an anchor. Back in verse 4, Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor for the souls of men. In the scriptures, there's always that image of holding on, that faith is the art of holding on in the darkness and in the fears. We hold on to what we know is true. I watched my sweet daughter go through that. I think every young lady, every Latter-day Saint just grows up knowing that, oh, there's a, there, there's a companion out there for me. Of course there's a companion out there for me. Heavenly Father will provide that. My daughter's patriarchal blessing promised her that. But then you hit a certain age and you start to doubt the promises. It's not that you don't know they're there. She, she knew the promises, 
But pretty soon you get to a point where the storm rages so fearfully that you let go of what you know is true and you start to fear. And we can lose the blessing in the darkness if we give in to our fear. So that's what Moroni, I think, is trying to say is hold on through the doubt, hold on through the darkness, through the fear, and claim the blessing. So he gives us this beautiful list. Starting in verse 6, I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not, because ye see not. For ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. You've got to hold on to what you know is true when every fear inside you is screaming out to let go. That's what he's trying to say. You receive no witness. You receive no blessing. You cannot claim the blessings of faith if you give in to doubt and fear. So starting in verse 7, it was by faith that Christ was manifested to a whole bunch of people, not just the ones in America. But verse 9, he's just trying to imply that, you know what? Christ can manifest himself to you if you don't doubt. Verse 9, ye may also have hope and be partakers of this gift. And I would suggest he's referring to 7, 8, the visit of Christ, where Christ shows himself unto people. You can participate in that gift if you will but have faith. If in the moments of doubt and darkness you hold on to what you know is true, if your conviction to hold on to hope in the darkness, you can cause that to happen. He says the same thing about verse 12. 12 through the next several verses are miracles. I love how he words it in verse 18. Neither at any time hath he wrought miracles until after their faith. Wherefore, they first believed in the Son of God. Every miracle has in it that moment of doubt and darkness and fear where you have to hold on to what you know is true. You trust God in the darkness, in the storm, and you don't let go of your hope. You don't let go of your confidence that God will fulfill his promises You trust those promises even when everything else inside you is screaming out that maybe he won't. You hold on in the darkness. That is the source of all these miracles, is that there was a moment in which they doubted, or they could have doubted, I should say, but they didn't. They chose to hold on. I love in verse 19 that talks about the people at the time of Christ when he visited them could not be kept from within the veil. And then this verse, the end of verse 19, but they truly saw with their eyes the things which they had beheld with the eye of faith. Meaning there was a moment where you trusted the promise but couldn't see it. You trusted that God would be there even though you couldn't see it happening. And you hold on in the darkness. And the blessing is you get to see what at one point you couldn't see happening. You can see with your eyes what at one point you could only see with the eye of faith. 
So every single one of us are facing challenges where do you hold on to a promise that God has given you? Or do you fear and let go? Hebrews chapter 10 has this beautiful little scene at the very end of that chapter where Paul, I'm going to attribute to Paul, it's commonly attributed to Paul. He says in verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence. I think that right there is the sentence. Dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Trust the promises. Know what God has promised and trust it. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Now, we can't see that promise. We can't see those blessings. So we trust them in the night. We trust them in the storm. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. That's the act. That's where we cause the miracle to happen. When we trust that he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And then Paul writes, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, There's the moment, drawing back, fear in the storm. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That's where we can lose the blessing. We can lose blessings in the darkness when we draw back. Instead of confidently holding on to the promises, if we cast away our confidence and draw back, We can cause the miracle to not come to pass. So Paul says, we are not of them who draw back. You know, interestingly enough, verse 39, it says, draw back into perdition, which means to just ruin it or destroy it. So if you think about your faith as a wall, if you get a brick that you can't fit in that wall, you don't rip the whole wall out. You put the brick to the side and you keep going, right? You hold on. So if we go back to all of these examples, it's fight through the fear, fight through the darkness, fight through the storm, fight through the unknown. It's that idea that Moroni says in verse 6, dispute not because you see not. You're not going to get the miracle until after you hold on in the darkness. So he talks about it was by faith that they saw Christ. So one of the miracles that you can invite to happen is to hold on to Jesus when everything around you would suggest that he's not there. It's a beautiful little moment from C.S. Lewis' writings, speaking of Jesus in Gethsemane, when he looked around and must have seen evidence that God had abandoned him, and yet he still chose to obey. And I think that's the idea. I'm going to hold to Christ. I'm going to hold on to my confidence in Jesus, even when I look around and I see no evidence of him. Dispute not because you see not, because you receive no blessings, you receive no miracle until after you pass that test, not casting away your confidence 
in the storm. He then talks about the miracle of Alma and Amulek in the prison, and then Lehi and Nephi making a change, or even the Ammon and his brethren. And again, I don't think he was saying that Ammon's faith changed the Lamanites. We can't interfere with agency. What I think he's saying is there was a moment clearly when Ammon's fear could very easily have kept him from going on that mission. But he trusted the promise. Do you remember when their dad received the promise? Let them go. They're not going to be destroyed. Let them go. It's okay. I'll watch out for them. They're not going to be destroyed. So how many times, in how many prisons, in how many dangerous situations could Ammon have feared and not trusted that promise and given up? But because he didn't fear, because he didn't hold back, because he didn't cast away his confidence, that was what allowed the miracle among the Lamanites to occur. I don't think we need to read that as saying it was Ammon's faith that caused the Lamanites to change, because we can't interfere with agency. But it was Ammon's faith in the darkness that allowed the miracle to occur. And that's what he, he, he just keeps saying. It was the faith of people who, in spite of doubt, in spite of fear, in spite of that moment where the storm raged, they held on, they didn't cast away their confidence, and that's when the blessings come. That's when miracles come, is when we hold on to what we know is true in spite of evidence that we have in front of us that it's not true. And there will always be things that we struggle with, always be pieces of the wall, as it were, Bryce, right, that we can't always get to, to fit. The word is to wreck it or to destroy it. So don't throw down the whole wall because something doesn't fit. Yeah. Don't doubt the promise. I, I just, I love when Joseph Smith lost 116 pages, when he relied too heavily on making Martin Harris happy. He was so worried about making Martin Harris happy because how am I going to get the funds to, to print this Book of Mormon? He did something he knew he shouldn't have done because he feared losing Martin Harris. And the Lord came back in section three and said simply, remember the promises. I like the end of verse 21 where it says, the brother Jared had such great faith he could not be kept from without the veil. So God wants to bring us into his presence. And I think that's the invitation at the end. And I think that veil, that's a great symbol. That veil is darkness and I can't see and I don't know. It's doubt. It's fear. It's unfulfilled promises in the past. It's concern. Whatever that veil is that prevents me from actually seeing the blessing fulfilled, that's the moment you hold on. That's the moment you don't throw down and destroy the whole wall simply because of one setback. You hold on to your confidence and you move forward. And we ought to jump now. We'll come back to the middle of chapter 12, but we ought to jump to the very end because this is where Moroni basically says, I invite you to seek this Jesus of other, whom the prophets and apostles have written. In, in other words, it's cool that it happened to these guys in the past, but Moroni is bridging that and saying, but really we're talking to you, right? It's all about your experience. It's all about your confidence in him. Have confidence in Christ, even in the storm, even in the darkness, even when every 
evidence you see in front of you would suggest the promises are not going to be fulfilled. Seek him, hold on to him, trust him. Faith is an anchor that we can hold on to. So seek this, Jesus. I also like from the ritual perspective, uh, verse 37, and it came to pass that the Lord said, if they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. This idea that you're going to come in, Moroni, you're going to come in and you're going to sit on the throne. We see this in Revelation 3.21, where the Lord says, whoever overcomes will sit down on the throne as I overcame and have sat down on my father's throne. This idea of it's participatory. He's bringing us into his presence. And so in verse 38, Moroni says, I bid you guys farewell. We'll meet at the judgment seat of Christ and everybody will know that my garments are not spotted with your blood. And then you shall know that I have seen Jesus and that he has talked with me face to face. Now, in a ritual context, this is in the Holy of Holies, right? This is the experience of talking to Jesus. And look what it says. He's told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another, in mine own language concerning these things. And only a few of them have I written because of my weakness in writing. And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus. And so he kind of goes through this progression. He starts out talking about faith. But then around verse 28, we shift into hope, hope again in verse 32, and then we shift into charity. In 34. So it's a progression, right? Faith, Faith, hope. And then hope and then charity. And in the three rooms of the temple, in, in the first temple, Moses kind of represented pulling them out of Egypt. He was the first priest. The second priest says, make way or make straight the way of the Lord. So now you're in the second room and you have hope because you're seeing some things. The light is on. You're in the bread of the presence. You see the light. And you can see in the second room in the first temple, you can see the veil. And as you have more hope and you're seeing things and you're hearing the word of God because you're in the church, then you develop agape or charity. You you see things the way God sees, right? And you're ready to come into the holy place. This charity of having his eyes and sitting where he sits, this is how heavenly beings act. And so the three priests in the first temple kind of fit contextually with faith and hope and charity and the invitation to sit down. And then Moroni says, it's for us to seek him and to be with him and to get into his presence. So we're going to see the opposite of this, everything we just mentioned briefly in the temple in the 15th chapter, because in the 15th chapter, it's the inverse of Ether 12. Instead of, yeah, instead of building Zion, it's just disintegration. And if you remember 2 Nephi 9, there were two paths you can choose in 2 Nephi 9. There was the path of life and the path of death. So Ether 12 is the path of life, but we'll see both. Let's go back to this little nugget that comes out in the middle of chapter 12. So we're having this discussion on faith, hope, and charity. We're having this marvelous discussion about how miracles come into your life, how you fight through the doubt and you fight through the darkness and you fight through the fear and you see with your eyes what you could only see with your faith. And then in the middle of that, he brings up the brother of Jared. And then he says, oh man, the Lord, verse 23, the the Gentiles are going to mock because we can't write like he writes. 
we're more aware of our imperfections and we can't write very well. And so the Gentiles are going to reject these things. And then the Lord gives us this just landmark scripture in the middle of that conversation. Verse 27, if men come unto me, I will point out to them. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness so that they have a choice. And here is one of the great choices of life. When God or anyone else points out your weakness, do you receive that humbly? Do you turn to the Lord? Are you humble when someone points out a weakness? If you are, God's grace is sufficient. He can then come in. If you, if you choose humility when someone points out a weakness, then his grace is sufficient to turn that weakness into a strength. If you have faith in him, you can turn that weakness into the strength, which is an absolute phenomenal concept. And it's so lost in the world today that when anyone points out a weakness, even when they do it with an accusation, even when they do it mockingly, Sometimes people point out weaknesses in frustration or in a revenge type situation. But how do you respond when someone points out a weakness? When God himself or someone points out a weakness, do you respond with humility? That's one of the great tests of life. I got to show you how Joseph Smith passed that test. In one of the ways I just stand in awe of the prophet Joseph Smith. This is an account from Jesse Crosby who went with a woman to see the prophet Joseph Smith and tells this story. He said, I went one day to the prophet with a sister. She had a charge to make against one of the brethren for scandal. When her complaint had been utterly heard, the prophet asked her if she was quite sure that what the brother said of her was untrue. She was quite sure that it was. Remember that fact. She was quite sure that the scandal was not true. He then told her to think no more about it, for it couldn't harm her. If untrue, it couldn't live, but the truth will survive. Still, she felt she should have some redress, right? You got to fix it, Joseph. We gotta, this is a wrong. We've got to right. Then he offered her his method for dealing with such cases for himself. When an enemy had told a scandalous story about him, now this just astounds me at the prophet Joseph. When an enemy had told a scandalous story about him, which had often been done, before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not by some unguarded word or act laid the block on which the story was built. He found that if he had done so, he said in his heart that he forgave his enemy and felt thankful that he had received a warning of a weakness that he had not known he possessed. Who in the world thinks like that? That's Joseph. That's why we love him. And that's why he set an example. When anyone told a scandalous story about Joseph, he thought, did I say something or do something that could have laid the block on which that scandal was built? If so, he says he frankly forgave his enemy and was grateful for a warning of a weakness he didn't know he possessed. That's astounding. He then said to the sister he would have her do the same, search her memory thoroughly and see if she had not herself unconsciously laid the foundation for the scandal that annoyed her. The sister thought deeply for a few moments and then confessed that she believed 
that she had. She had done something that perhaps laid the block on which that rumor was built. Then the prophet told her in her heart that she should forgive that brother who had risked his own good name and her friendship to give her this clearer view of herself. The sister thanked her advisor and went away in peace. That's just astounding. Now, what are you going to do when someone points out a flaw? Even when they, maybe it's the, the, someone honking at you. Maybe they're pointing out that you're not the perfect driver that maybe you thought you were. Or maybe it's a spouse in a passing comment. Or maybe it's your enemy. Or maybe it's God himself. If men come unto me, I will show them their weakness. Now you get to choose. Do you respond to that with humility? I remember overhearing a student say something about me that initially I said, no, 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 that's not true. I don't do that. And I was defensive and I put it off. And then later I thought about this scripture and I thought about the prophet Joseph's response. So I pondered and said, now, wait a minute. Why would a student get the impression that that was true. Have I ever done or said something that might lead a student to conclude that? Oh my goodness, I have. Oh yeah, I can totally see now why a student would think that about me. And it led to dramatic changes in me. God's grace is sufficient when we are humble and when we have faith in him that he then can allow our, our weaknesses to become strength. But it takes that monumental moment of choosing humility when someone points out a weakness. And then we get strength. Now, Moroni, the Lord says that to Moroni. You have done that very thing. He says in verse 37, because you have seen your weakness, you shall be made strong. It works. It worked with Moroni. Now, how many of us would honestly think that Moroni's writings are weak? Even though that's what he was afraid they were. God can turn our weaknesses into strengths, but it requires humility in that moment when someone points out a weakness. So, beautiful little gem in the middle of this chapter on faith, hope, and charity. But it certainly relates to charity, right? Charity to the person who pointed out my weakness, faith in God that he can help me correct it. It's the, I'm not going to let the storm of offense sink me on this one. I'm going to hold on, and the Lord's going to help me overcome a weakness absolute gem of gift in the middle of this chapter. That idea of weakness is coming out of his acknowledgement, verse 23, where he says, I'm not really good at writing this stuff. I can talk about it. I can communicate it, but writing is hard. Now, I think a big problem is also you got one shot at this. I mean, I got a pencil and I can erase this. And he's going through this going, how do I write on this, the, this medium? And I think he just makes the best out of a tough situation. Trusting what? And there's the key. Trusting God, yeah. Trusting God that he can make the, the simple words I put down on these gold plates mean something to the people in the latter day. And I think that's the key is, you know what? I'm going to trust that God can make this work. I'm going to do my very best. He, he obviously feels 
constrained by these plates. Yeah, he says, I mean, look what he says in 24. He says, you've made that we could write little because of the awkwardness of our hands. You've not made us mighty in writing like the brother of Jared. Thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty, even as thou art unto the overpowering of man to read them. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great, our words, even that we cannot write them. Wherefore, when we write them, we see our weakness and we stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear the Gentiles are going to mock us. Clearly, Moroni is saying, listen, this isn't 100% perfect. And then the Lord says in verse 26, don't worry about it. I think this is also an approach for Latter-day Saints, how we can approach scripture. In 1978, there was a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And a lot of really good religious thinkers got together and they drew up a series of articles and they they came up with this idea that the Bible is inerrant. And I'm not saying this to denigrate our fellow brothers and sisters who are Christians who maybe aren't of our faith. I say this just to help us see the difference. And certainly what I'm about to say, not every Christian believes. But in these articles, they're essentially saying the Bible is in its entirety inerrant. But then the one that really gets me is where they say that we've had no revelation since the apostles. Article five, here it is. We affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. And then it says, we deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. Now, the Bible doesn't make that assertion. It's the same assertion that priests made to Joseph Smith. Remember that story where Joseph tells the minister, he says, I've seen God. And the minister says, no, no one has, that's not possible. All revelation has ceased with the apostles. Now, we don't take this position. We take the position that revelation continues. We have prophets today, but we also take the position that Moroni takes. If you do a really careful reading of Ether 12, Moroni is essentially saying, I'm a man. I'm also a prophet. I've had these visions, but I'm not the best at this. This is something that's very difficult. And God says in verse 26, it is sufficient. I can fix it. I can do this. I can fix it. I can communicate this. Now, before I sounds like I'm completely throwing the Chicago statement of inerrancy under the bus, I do want to read this little gem in here because I read this and I thought, okay, of the whole thing, this is something I can wrap my brain around. It says this, scripture is inerrant. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but then listen to what it says next. Not in the sense of being absolutely precise by modern standards, but in the sense of making good its claims and achieving the measure of focused truth at which its authors aimed. That I can agree with. I don't look at all scripture as a 100% a science textbook, for example. But if you look at scripture as what's its objective, its objective is to take me back to Jesus. And I look the same way at the Book of Mormon. I read the Book of Mormon and clearly Moroni is saying, listen, this isn't 100% perfect, but what is it aiming at? And if we can take that approach, not only to scripture, but to our leaders, to our spouse, to our children, to each other, if we can just have an eye of grace, an eye of charity, and before we point out their weaknesses, like Bryce said, come into Christ and see it in ourselves, we can give each other the benefit of the doubt. Uh, To me, that's what scripture is. It's a vehicle to get us in a state to where we can commune with God and he can talk to us. 
That to me is the essence of what it is. And I like, I'm so appreciative that Moroni puts this in here and it drives inerrance crazy. The people that look at the, all of scripture is completely inerrant, that, that fundamental position, I can't take it. Because if we're so rigid in that, and then somebody points something out that goes against it, we shatter like glass. And if anything, Joseph Smith teaches us. Joseph Smith walks out of the sacred grove and he's like, you guys can't settle this question by an appeal to the Bible. We have to approach the the God of heaven. But scriptures get us in that position. Joseph Smith at 14 gets it. And all of you who are teachers and parents out there, we ought to leap for joy. Your lesson doesn't have to be perfect. Your lesson is like Moroni saying, oh, I'm so, I struggle that I'm inadequate. I can't teach this class. I don't know what to say. I don't have every answer, but I can get them tuned into the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost can answer those questions. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that teaching and parenting is simply that, an act of pushing people to Christ so that he can give them the perfect understanding that our words can't. So beautiful symbolism here. And it all just comes back to trusting that God can fix what we are not perfect doing. Whether I have to teach a class and you know what, I'm not going to say it perfectly. I'm not, I don't have the words. I can't teach the atonement adequately. Well, I can teach it well enough to get the Holy Ghost into the room and into the hearts of the people who are listening, and then he can teach the atonement. That's the issue. That's, that's the that's issue. That's what we want. Before we leave 12, I just love the invitation at the end in verse 41 where Moroni says, I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written. That's an invitation, and I fully believe it. I love what Bruce McConkie taught at the University of Utah, where he talked about your calling an election. And, you know, what does this mean? He taught this in a talk called The Probationary Test of Mortality. And I'm going to put the whole quote in the show notes, but I'm just going to read this end part of the quote. He says, if you're on the path, the gospel path, when death comes, because this is the time and day appointed, this, the probationary state, you'll never fall off from the path. And for all practical purposes, your calling and election is made sure. I love that. In other words, He says, you don't have to get a complex or a feeling you have to be perfect to be saved. You don't. Only Jesus was perfect. So the invitation to come and see Jesus or to receive your calling and election, that teaching or that idea, to Elder McConkie, essentially what he's saying is, you get on the path, you stay on the path, and you keep moving. It's going to happen. And that's my testimony. I don't think necessarily that we're all going to be like Moroni. And we're going to see Jesus in this life. If it's necessary, it'll happen. But for us, for me, we get on the path, we develop and cultivate faith, hope, and then charity. We see as he sees, verse 37, we'll sit down in the kingdom with Heavenly Father. That's, that's my testimony as kind of my ending thought on Ether 12. And I love to quote Nephi, who was also concerned that his writings weren't good enough. Interesting connection to Moroni. But 2 Nephi chapter 31, verse 20, has to me the greatest promise in the scriptures. He says, move forward. Just move forward, trusting God. Wherefore, if you shall press forward, feasting upon the word of God, love God, love man, even unto the end which I assume he's here talking about death. If you're pressing forward when the end comes, Nephi says, 
Thus saith the Father, Ye shall have eternal life. For all practical purposes, if you are moving forward in this life, if you are growing from grace to grace, if you are moving down the path when you die, thus saith the Father, you have in essence made your calling election sure. That is achievable by every Latter-day Saint. I'm going to die on the path. I'm going to move forward to the very end so that when I do die, the Father says, you shall have eternal life. We ought not to stress over promises made to individuals that are going to come to pass in God's own way, in a different way in my life. I'm going to stay faithful to the end. I'm going to die on the path so that I can hear the Father say, you shall have eternal life. But we should seek Jesus. We should live with faith. We should live through the darkness when the storm comes. We need to hold on to the promises that have been given. We should not cast away our confidence. Seek Jesus and come unto him. And with that, Moroni says, I'm going to finish my record. And then he tells what Bryce always says is the favorite story. We're going to build the new Jerusalem and it's going to happen. Everybody, middle of verse two of chapter 13, everyone's going to serve him. And this place, this new Jerusalem, look at the end of verse three. It will be a holy sanctuary of the Lord. Verse four. It's going to be on this land. And Moroni is quoting Ether, this ancient prophet, that says that it's going to be in this land. It's going to be built up a holy city unto the Lord. That's all verse 4. And it could not be a new Jerusalem, for it had been in a time of old, but it should be built up again and become a holy city of the Lord. And it should be built unto the house of Israel. And a new Jerusalem shall be built up upon this land. Who's it going to be for and who's going to do it? Look at the middle of verse seven towards the end. It will be by the seed of Joseph and they won't perish. Verse eight, the house of Joseph's going to build it. It's going to be a land for their inheritance, a holy city like it says in verse eight, not the same, but like the Jerusalem of old and they shall no more be confounded. And so there will be a day when there will be a new Jerusalem in this land. And then verse nine There'll be a new heaven and new earth. And I like these two description words in verse 10. They'll be blessed and their garments will be made white. They will be pure. This is the prophecy of the new Jerusalem. And I think we see this in here because we're going to shift. We're going to go from light to darkness. And this is kind of this middle fulcrum, as it were, of this section. We're going to shift to the disintegration of their culture. But notice what he says here. Go to verse 11. Then cometh the Jerusalem of old. So the Jerusalem of old will be built. And the inhabitants thereof, blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they are they who were scattered and gathered in from the four quarters of the earth. Now those two phrases, scattered and gathered, if you put those two together, that's Zarahemla. Zarah is seed or scattered. And the second part of that, Hemla, is gathered. So Zarahemla is this It's like this perfect name for a city where God's going to take the scattered seeds of Joseph and gather them in. And this is the, in essence, this, we're back to what Bryce talks about. This is the, his favorite story. Israel's scattered, but we're going to gather them in. Notice what it says from the four quarters of the earth. Now I would say that the United States of America is this place where people come from all over because they want to build a better world. They want to have an opportunity. Now, I also believe that the principles that the founders 
cultivated when they built the Constitution, which was inspired, I believe other countries are espousing those. And so I don't want to be like this guy that says only America is great. But to Ether and to Moroni, they see something special in this land. And so then he says that it's going to fulfill the covenants which God made with Abraham, even this land. And so this is a fun book if you want to read it. It's by Tim Ballard called The Pilgrim Hypothesis. And I I read this book kind of in preparation for this because I thought, okay, I want to just get my feet wet in some of these ideas like what were the pilgrims thinking and what were were the early colonists thinking about this land? And so what Tim Ballard did was he actually went and read a lot of their journals and a lot of the things that they talk about. His hypothesis is that the people that came to this land had a vision for what it should be or what it could be. There's a chapter in this book on Christopher Columbus. And it starts out in this chapter on Christopher Columbus where it breaks down his name. And I'd never thought about it like this before, but he's right. Christopher. So the fur part is Pharaoh, which means to carry. And then you have obviously Christ, Christ. He's the Christ carrier or the Christ bearer. That's what Christopher means. And you'll have to read this chapter on Christopher Columbus, but it blows my mind. And I know that this guy's not that popular today. Christopher Columbus, he gets kind of beat up. But what Tim Ballard did was he went and he read a bunch of parts of his journal. This is a quote out of it. It says, of the new heaven and the new earth, which our Lord has made. And as St. John writes in the apocalypse, after he had told it by the mouth of Isaiah, he made me the messenger for it and showed me where to find it. He totally believed that there would be a new Jerusalem here in the Americas. And he totally believed that God had called him to come to find the land where the new Jerusalem could be built so that the old one could be built. And he quoted Isaiah over and over again. And he believed that this new land would be a place where Zion would be built. And so sometimes when we read things that people say negative about Christopher Columbus, it's good to go to the primary source and ask, okay, what did Christopher Columbus believe? And another thing I want to throw out there is this idea of presentism. Let's not judge Christopher Columbus with our 2020 lenses. Let's not judge him based on how we view things. That's called presentism. We need to get into, okay, what did they think in 1492? Because really that's when he lived. I think if Christopher Columbus lived in 2020, he probably would say things differently, certainly. And so now was Christopher Columbus a prophet? I'm not saying he was but I certainly think he was inspired. Now, just as a side note for Latter-day Saints, I know there's a lot going on with Christopher Columbus, but do you remember when Wilford Woodruff had the founding fathers appear unto him and demand their temple work be done? One interesting side note, according to Wilford Woodruff's journal, that day, not all of them, but a few of them were ordained as high priests. We don't do that in the temple. We ordain them to the office of an elder. But about five men on that occasion were ordained to the office of high priest. And guess who one of them was? Christopher Columbus. The Christ bearer. Christopher Columbus was ordained a high priest in the St. George Temple. Now that can't just be a coincidence. That had to have been a connection between heaven and earth. Just food for thought for Latter-day Saints. You can find that in Ezra Taft Benson's book, This Nation Shall Endure. We'll get that in the show notes for you. I I appreciate you, Bryce, sharing that. Um, Clearly, to Ether, 
this is his favorite. You know, this is we're back to the this I said the, the favorite story. Favorite story that he tells. I mean, clearly he told it to Christopher Columbus. He told it to Ether, and we pointed out because. Do you Latter-day Saints understand the role that we play in the Savior's favorite story? Do you understand that to Ether, the last chapter of his book is our book, is our chapter, that he can deal with the loss of his people. He can deal with the destruction of the Jaredites as Moroni can deal with the destruction of the Nephites because they know who we are and what we are going to do and that we will build this new Jerusalem. We are in the process of building that new Jerusalem. We need to understand, as we read Ether chapter 13, just before his whole people fall to shreds, he takes a look at us. He rejoices in our day. That's what you need to read when you read chapter 13, is that we brought him hope. Therefore, we should shoulder our burdens and rise up and be who we ought to be. We should be the people that they saw us to be. We should have charity. We should have faith, hope. We should build the kingdom. We should be Christ carriers, and we should do all that we can to build this kingdom. We are the ones that gave them hope. Certainly. I mean, there has to be hope. There has to be, and I think he sees it. Now, before we end 13, just take a look at this. Look at the middle of verse 13 and look at the middle of verse 18 and the end of verse 22. You see a phrase and it's repeated over and over again that he hides himself in the cavity of a rock. Verse 14, he dwells in the cavity of a rock. And then it says that he fled from before these people that want to kill him and he hid in the cavity of a rock. Now, I don't know, but just think about this. Jesus was buried in the cavity of a rock. And many historians and people that view the birth narrative from a traditional perspective think that the manger was in a cave in the cavity of a rock. That phrase in the cavity of the rock can also represent like a niche in a rock. And what was that niche? Depends on who you read traditionally, but the Holy of Holies was on the foundation stone And the idea is that carved out of that rock was a niche to put the ark. That this represented, once again, the Holy of Holies coming into God's presence. And so who's ether? Well, he represents Christ. He's coming in and out of a cavity of a rock. But also, he is in God's presence. And he's he's hidden, middle of verse 13, in the cavity of a rock. But he's also covered in the cavity of the rock. Or the idea of atonement. The message that Ether shares with them is that they need to repent. Verse 22 of the 13th chapter, Coriantumr does not repent. And the message to him is this. If you repent, you'll have the kingdom. If you don't repent, then we're going to see disintegration. And so the, the book of Ether ends with Coriantumr seeing the entire destruction of his people. And he's like the last guy. He's this king. And he's the last guy standing, as it were. And Ether writes his story. And so in the 14th and 15th chapter... It's the disintegration of his people. And it's like five pages, four and a half pages of text. So notice the tension. We start off with this guy named Sherod. Look at the 13th chapter, the 23rd verse. 
It says, it came to pass that there arose up Sherit, and he gave battle to Coriantumr, and he did beat him insomuch that in the third year he did bring him into captivity. So now he's in captivity. We're kind of repeating this cycle that we've talked about before. But then we read this. In the 14th chapter, they, they have issues with their tools, and they can't find him, and everything's slippery, and every man, verse 2, cleaves unto that which was his own and with his hands and would not borrow, neither would he lend. And every man kept the hilt of his sword in his right hand in the defense of his property. And now after the space of two years and after the death of Sherod, there arose another person. Now the person's name, verse eight, is Gilead. But notice what he's called. He's called the brother of Sherod over and over again. Middle of verse three, Second line in verse four, the brother of Sherod, again in verse five. And then in the, in the eighth verse, he says, now the brother of Sherod, whose name was Gilead, received great strength in his army because of his secret combinations. Now, whether this is Moroni's repackaging or this is how Ether wrote it, I don't know. Why is he called the brother of Sherod? I don't know, but I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe it's a pun. Maybe it's like we're trying to bring you back to the mind of, the brother of Jared, and we're doing the opposite. My contention is that these last two chapters are a complete inversion of everything that's going on. So it's a repackaging of 2 Nephi 9. If you remember 2 Nephi 9, there's the way of life and there's the way of death. And so we have the way of life in the 12th and 13th chapter of Ether, and now we're going to show you the way of death. And the reason, another reason why it's portrayed this way is because this is the disintegration of their culture. And so, well, what's the opposite of the brother of Jared? Well, we see this guy named the brother of Sherod, and it talks about him attacking and trying to take out Coriantumr. And then we get to this interesting verse. Go down to verse 9. It came to pass that his high priest murdered him as he sat upon his throne. So instead of the high priest taking us into God's presence, the high priest in chapter 14, verse 9, kills the king or kills the brother of Sherod. And then it came to pass that one of the secret combinations murdered him in a secret pass and obtained unto himself the kingdom. And his name was Lib. And Lib was a man of great stature. So Lib kills either Sherod or he is the high priest, depending on how you read it. So Lib's doing his thing, right? He's attacking. He wants to take out Coriantumr, and they're battling in the 14th chapter and then verse 11, and they're battling all the way down to finally um, he's killed. So it says in verse 16 that he dies, and then the brother of Lib pops up, and his name is Shiz. And I love this question that's asked when Shiz rises up. If you if you skip down to verse 18. Everybody is crying in the land. Who can stand before the army of Shiz? What a sentence. Behold, he sweepeth the earth before him. And this is the last guy to kind of take out Coriantumr. There's all these dead people in verse 21, and there's none left to bury the dead. And there's this horrible scent. That's all verse 23. And then we get this thus we see moment. Verse 25. Thus we see that the Lord did visit them in the fullness of his wrath and their wickedness and abominations had prepared a way for their everlasting destruction. So instead of preparing a way for their everlasting life, they prepared the way for their everlasting destruction. And then this final battle that takes place is fascinating. If you go to the 15th chapter, it's a seven-day event. So we start in verse 15, and it talks about they fought all that day. And you can just kind of go through your scriptures and see how it works. In the 17th verse, they did go again. That's day number two on the next day to battle. 
And then we got the third day in verse 19 and 20. They have their third day of battle. And then their fourth day in verse 21. And then their fifth day. If you look at the end of verse 22, they sleep and then they get up and fight again. And then in verse 24, the sixth day they fight. And it's the end of the sixth day there in 25. And then we pick up to day seven after they eat and sleep. And then the end is the seventh day of battle, that basically the end of the chapter. Now, why all this detail and what's going on? Let me take you to a book by Hugh Nibley. And this book's called The Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri and Egyptian Endowment. And this is page 126 in the most recent edition. And in this, he's talking about the nature of texts and how Egyptians also packaged some of their teachings that were in code. So here's the quote. Hugh writes, everyone knows that the Egyptians called hieroglyphics the, quote, divine words. And they knew that it meant to conceal, if not to mystify. They know also that in the most important passages, the scribes often resorted to cryptograms and even spoke to each other in code language when they discussed them. It is not too much to say that the religious texts are written in a meta-language or a special type of expression. The words used on the higher level could only be understood in their true sense by the initiated. Everything was in code. The nature of the gods concealed by a cloud of epithets, referring to the mythological or occultic situations which only the instructed understood. The cultic images are not portraits, but ideograms that must be interpreted. Now, what's he saying? I think what he's saying is there's a story within the story. So, yes, this is about the destruction, the disintegration of a great once what were called a mighty and fair people. But it's also something else. It's a parody, as it were, or an anti-temple experience. Now, These ideas are really expressed really well in Butler's book, The Goodness and the Mysteries. Another author that really influenced me to really understand this book within a book is LeGrand Baker. He wrote a book called Who Shall Ascend into the Hill of the Lord? The Psalms in Israel's Temple Worship in the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon. And he wrote another book called The Book of Mormon as an Ancient Israelite Temple. Those two books, as well as Butler's book, The Goodness and the Mysteries, really start unpacking these ideas. And if you get into... Hugh Nibley's book on Joseph Smith and the Egyptian Endowment, I think a lot of that can be read as commentary on the Book of Mormon. Every time Hugh Nibley starts talking about how the Egyptians viewed scripture in your mind, just go with me to the Book of Mormon and you'll start seeing the Book of Mormon differently. And so with that as a backdrop, let's look at some of these things that Butler exposes. Some of them I'm going to add stuff that I've thought about over, over the course of my studies and just be seeing this as like I said, a parody on the temple or an anti-temple experience. So we did the, the way of life, and now we're going to look at the way of death. So notice a couple things. The brother of Jared speaks with the Lord for three hours at the end of a four-year period. And you can read that in, in the second chapter of Ether. But if you go to Ether 15, like we did the brother of Jared and the brother of Sherrod, go to Ether 15, and you're going to see some more of these mirrors. So in the 14th verse... 
of the 15th chapter of Ether, it says this, that they were there for for the space of four years, gathering together the people that they might get all that were upon the face of the land, that they might receive all the strength that it was possible that they could receive. This is similar to the experience in the second chapter of Ether, where they wait for four years before they travel. The Lord speaks with the brother of Jared for three hours. Look in Ether 15.27. Instead of beholding God, we have this life and death struggle for three hours. But it's not light, it's darkness. Notice where they are. The location of, of this battle. Verse 11 of chapter 15. The hill Rama, which we've talked about before. High or lifted up. So this is once again a temple setting. These inverted temple images start to pop when we examine a little bit further. Notice the 15th chapter. If you read verse 15 and verse 16 very carefully, you'll see there's some ritual clothing taking place and some ritual singing. But it's not the singing of the blessed, verse 16. It's the singing of the damned. They howl and lament for the slain of their people. And they're not clothed with the robes of the priesthood in verse 15, but with the accruements of war, which is interesting because Paul's going to use that imagery the same kind of way, right? The helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and those things. But notice what it says. These guys put on weapons of war, shields, breastplates, headplates, being clothed after the manner of war. So we're clothing and we're singing. Not only are we singing, but they're eating and they're drinking just like the feast at the last day of the temple ceremony in the first Israelite temple, just like Exodus 24, where they meet God and they eat and drink, just like all the places we read about in the end of the book of Revelation, just like section 27. But in this time, they're drunk and they eat, but it's not a feast. Look at verse 22. When the night came, they were drunken with anger as a man is drunken with wine. And then verse 26, they ate and slept and they prepared for the morrow in this battle, this seven-day battle, same as the first Israelite temple, this seven-day festival. But instead of feasting and coming to God, notice verse 19 of Ether 15, instead of God having full power over their heart, we have Satan having full power over the hearts of their people. Instead of feasting with God, they feast in hate. They're drunk with anger. And then I really like what, what Butler says when he says this, After setting all this up, Moroni shows you this, where he says, Shiz's decapitation looks like a parody of a temple ascent, a failed resurrection that literally ends in mindless flailing and death, if you look in Ether 15, 30, and 31, especially in light of the secret combination's origin story, in which their entire objective is to take the king's head. So his objective is to take the king's head and he loses his head. And then Butler writes, Ether 15 shows us the fate of the people who put their faith in the mysteries of these Gadianton robbers, rather than in the mysteries of God. This is the bloody and pointless anti-holy of holies of these people who fight the visionaries. So even here, the space of three hours derives from the temple ordinance. Remember, we see this also in 3 Nephi. And then he writes, I think Ether wrote his underlying account of the showdown at the Hill Rama as a deliberate parody. And he tells us he's doing this. And so I invite you to read it this way and to see that even in the midst of this, Moroni is using temple language. Now, the idea of bowing is a very 
common thing that's taught in the temple, the idea of bowing before the king. And if you take a really good look at Ether 15, verse 27, everyone is fainting. It says that they fought for the space of three hours and they fainted with the loss of blood. So they collapse. They literally fall down. We have Nephi in 3 Nephi eleven nineteen bowing down before Jesus and the healed Nephites, if you do a careful reading of 3 Nephi 17, 10, in a ritual context, the Nephites that are healed bow down before Jesus. I don't think in 3 Nephi eleven nineteen that Nephi is just bowing as we would see in a traditional Eastern greeting. Look what it says, verse 19, Nephi arose and went forth and bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. And then 20, the Lord commanded him that he should arise, and he arose and stood before him. I think this is about where he's on the ground, literally, just like these Jaredite warriors faint for the loss of blood. And so they're on the ground. Now, Coriantumr, his name is this combination of a couple different words. If Sumerian is the backdrop to this language, then you've got Kur, mountain, on, heaven, and dinger, or its variants, which is of heaven or godly or divine, the heavenly mountain of God could possibly be his name. It's a really cool kingly name. And so if you think about it, Coriantumr is the king. And so in a perfect setting, he's the one that they should bow before. And they do, but in this parody manner, they're all bowing down because they're dead. And so I really see that as well, that this is not only a parody of the temple, but Coriantumr, it also shows what he could have had. He could have had the kingdom, and Ether even tells him that he could have had it, but he didn't repent. Another really interesting thing is Moroni makes it very clear that there were men, women, and children there at this event. So if you look in verse 2, after it talks about all the people that have died, he says that there were men and children there. He says it in verse two, and in case you missed it, he says it again in the middle of verse 15. This is the same thing we see in the Book of Mormon at the temple settings. We've got a couple really clear ones, one in Bountiful and one at the temple with King Benjamin. And in both cases, the emphasis is made that men, women, and their children were there. So go to 3 Nephi 17, look at verses 10 through 13, as well as verse 25. And you see it again in the second chapter of Mosiah, verse 5 and 40. We read that they came to the temple, they pitched their tents round about it, every man according to his family, consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters and their sons and their daughters from the eldest down to the youngest, every man being separate one from another. We see this again in Mosiah 2, 5 and 40 where we read that they came up to the temple, they pitched their tents round about, every man according to his family, consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters and their sons and their daughters, from the eldest down to the youngest, every man being separate one from another. And so in that temple setting, everybody was there and everybody was invited, both in King Benjamin's address as well as in the book of Third Nephi. And we see this here in these war chapters and Moroni makes a point to draw our minds to this, to see this. This war affected everybody, and we rise or we fall together. Alexander the Great once said that upon the conduct of each depends the fate of all. I love that quote so much. I just, I have it with me and I carry it with me because sometimes we think, especially today, that what I do doesn't matter. I can do what I want and it doesn't really have any influence. And I really see that 
as a false idea. What we do, like ripples in a pond, affects other people. If you think that what you do doesn't affect other people, I think Moroni would say, no, that's wrong. From Coriantumr on down, everyone, we are all connected. Another thought here, we see that this is all about obtaining the throne. Whether it's Shiz or Lib or Gilead, the brother of Sherrod, I love that pun, they're all seeking the throne. So, for example, if you go to Ether 14, look at verse 6. And he came forth to the land of Moron, I love that, and placed himself upon the throne of Coriantumr. That's what they're all after. Everybody wants it. Verse 9, when he's on the throne, what happens? His high priest kills him when he's on the throne. So instead of obtaining life, they obtain death because they're doing it wrong. The throne is a temple word. So we see this in 1 Nephi 1.8 where Nephi tells us that his father sees God sitting on his throne. And it just pops up again and again throughout the Book of Mormon. 1 Nephi 17 verse 39, 2 Nephi 16.1, Alma 26.22, and Moroni 9.26. When you see this word thrown in the Book of Mormon, we have to ask ourselves, is this dealing with the temple? And a lot of times the answer is yes, that it's dealing with the Holy of Holies in a ritual context. Now in these two chapters, 14 and 15 of Ether, it's a parody of an inverted symbol being used by Moroni to emphasize that when you get on a path, you're choosing that path. And if you think you're not on the path or you're not choosing, that's a choice. Everybody's choosing something. Even in the darkness, Moroni, he's trying to point us to Christ. That no matter what you do in life, you're making a choice. And you can choose which path you go on. But essentially, 2 Nephi 9 says, they're going to lead to life or they're going to lead to death. And it ends with this verse, verse 34. Now, the last words which were written by Ether are these. Whether the Lord will that I be translated or that I suffer the will of the Lord in the flesh, it mattereth not. If it so be that I'm saved in the kingdom of God, amen. And to me, that's the issue. Lord, do with me what you will. I just want to be again with you. That's where we want to go. We're pointing back to the Savior. And with that, we'll pick it up next time when we start with the book of Moroni. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.